Amen. I don't know what it is. Last week I shared with you my childhood fear of the dark and imaginary dragons. Um, but And this week God begins us um, with a theme of darkness as well. And my day this morning, I don't know about yours, but if you were on my side of the town, um, my day began in darkness. Um, not necessarily by any choice of my own, but because with the storm last night, it knocked out power to my whole area of Sango. And so I woke up, and there was no lights, there was no power, there was nothing. The kids actually came out uh, uh, and let me know that the power was out. And I said, I know that it's out. I think Bryant went back into his room. He has this little um, techno kit, this little engineering thing, and I think that he pieced it together and uh, hooked himself up in light so that he could turn it back on in his room. Um, proud of him for that. Emerson, though, was just kind of out of luck a little bit. But with the power out, I'll tell you what, it makes things really difficult. It makes things difficult to, to see, obviously. It makes things difficult. It, it takes all of the confidence that you once had to be able to do things, and it just turns the tables backwards. Confident, bold steps become timid little shuffles as you're trying not to hit the coffee table, despite the fact that you know where it is, though in my house it's a crapshoot because it could be moved at any point. But it, darkness just, it takes all of our confidence away from us. We can't see, we can't understand, we are easily confused. We, we don't have the, the ability to adjust very well. We lose the, uh, ab- the, the, the privileges or the, 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 um, the benefits of our life because, well, I don't want to just jump in the shower necessarily. I'm scared to open the refrigerator because we're not going to be able to reheat the water and the refrigerator, the stuff might spoil because it's out. There's no clocks. There's no this. There's no that. And all of the benefits of life just kind of revert back to nothingness. And unfortunately, I didn't have the option of just going back to bed and coming back later because I had to get up and get ready and be here. But even more, we might think of it as a minor inconvenience here, but it made me think of the men and women are on the other side of the world right now in Ukraine who are facing a winter with no power and no heat. Broke my heart with the reality that, you know, darkness is an inconvenience, but really throughout Scripture and in our lives and literature, we see darkness is a metaphorical sign and symbol of despair, of depression, of gloom. And throughout Scripture, we see that it is something that paralyzes us, just like we saw fear last week. It, it comes from many different places. It is a, a spiritual darkness that is cast over the world because of sin. It is a darkness that we feel and we experience because the reality is when we look at the world, there's something inside of us. Whether we stand in grief at a funeral or whether we read another news headline or whether we're betrayed by another friend or whether we are just left with this confusion about what does tomorrow hold, we experience this blindness, this darkness, and the brokenness of our world. And our gut screams, it's not supposed to be this way. We feel it. And that spiritual darkness plagues us and is over us at many different times. And it is a spiritual darkness that threatens every single heart, every single soul, every single person, family, household, home across the world. And it can leave us in a state of hopelessness. But God gives us reason to hope that despite even the darkness, we have reason to rejoice in Jesus Christ. Look with me, if you will, in Isaiah chapter 9. 
kind of picking up in the middle of something that Isaiah is preaching and teaching. It's clear from the opening word, but. So we will pick up there and we'll talk about where he is, but chapter 9, verse 1, Isaiah writes, but there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time, God brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness on them has light shone. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as in the day of Midian. For every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. For to us a child is born. To us, a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Would you pray with me? Father, what a tremendous promise. In the midst of an otherwise dark passage of Scripture, the light of hope in your work on our behalf, the light of the hope of a child, meek and mild and humble and vulnerable, who nevertheless is the answer to our prayers. is stronger and greater than any enemy that is outside of us. And as we'll see this morning, is greater than even the enemies inside us. I thank you, Heavenly Father, for the grace and the mercy that comes by the gospel of Jesus Christ. I thank you, Heavenly Father, that in your kingdom things are upside down. That it's not the strong. It's not the intelligent not the experienced, it's the child, it's the humble, it's the broken, it's the poor, it's the needy. And those willing to admit themselves as such, who are the recipients of your grace? Who are the ones who walk in light as opposed to darkness? So I thank you for my brother who prayed for me already, and I pray and agree with his request. Would you anoint my heart and my mind and my lips to speak only the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ this morning? To lift high the name of Jesus, who is the light that defeats the darkness. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen. Amen. Last week, we began a series that we've titled The Name Above All Names. As we look at several different places in anticipation of Scripture in Advent season where Jesus is called something. And if you remember last week, if, or if you weren't here last week, we looked at the um, name of Jesus Christ that is we see in first in Isaiah chapter 7, so just a page or two over from where you might be in your Bible, but ultimately explained by Matthew in Matthew chapter 1, Jesus is Emmanuel, God with us. 
And we talked last week, and the point of this sermon series is we're asking this question, who is Christ? Who is Jesus? Wanting to understand a deeper knowledge than maybe necessarily the historical component that we have understand, understood in the past, but really doing something that in theology we would talk about and title Christology. It's the study of Christ. And based on his names, what do these names reveal to us about his nature and his character? And last week in looking at Emmanuel, God with us, we saw that Jesus Christ is God in the flesh. And he has all of the privileges and all of the personality and all of the power that comes with being God. He was 100% God, but also 100% man. This morning, fleshing out and really kind of over the next couple of weeks, we will see as we are introduced to different names of Jesus, we'll see more of that man side of Christ, the role that he had as the promised Messiah come to an explanation. And here in Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6, probably a passage of Scripture, if you have grown up in the church that you hear read or referenced every year at Christmas, Jesus has given several names and titles, but probably the most prominent among them being the Prince of Peace. What does that mean that Jesus Christ is the Prince of Peace? We have assumptions of what that peace must be. In our world, peace means just the absence of conflict, and that we are at peace when there is some kind of peace agreement or a ceasefire that exists, and it is just this state of neutrality, if you will, where there's no open conflict. But what we will see as we study this passage of Scripture is that the Bible's understanding of peace is so much greater. It's so much greater than the simple absence of conflict. It is a completeness, a wholeness. The Hebrew word is shalom. Christ is the administrator of shalom. But before we can understand that, we have to understand what it is that Isaiah reveals to us is the problem of these people. And we see that at the very beginning, there is this rich contrast between the people who at one point are in darkness and despair, gloom, who have all of a sudden been exposed to the light. And the reality is the people in Isaiah's day existed in a spiritual darkness as well as an external darkness and despair. We see the reality of this darkness really throughout the book of Isaiah. We see that it begins all the way back in chapter 1 as Isaiah begins to condemn the people of his time for their wickedness, for their evil, as he pronounces woes upon them, as he proclaims them to be in chapter 1 verse 4, a sinful nation, a people laden with iniquity, offspring of evildoers, children who deal corruptly. They have forsaken the Lord. They have despised the Holy One of Israel. They are utterly estranged. What we see throughout the prophets, and we just finished a series through the minor prophets, if you'll remember, the pattern of the people is that, and you can even go back to the judges, you would see there is a, a period of time of living in God's blessing until the people rebel and they turn back to themselves. They stop trusting in God and instead turn to themselves and trust in themselves. They begin bringing in other idolatrous worship from their neighbors and they begin to rebel against the Lord. And the Lord in His love then disciplines His children and brings them back as He rescues and redeems them. And they live in a period of joy and grace and peace until the cycle starts over again. And God oftentimes in that period in which they are rebelling against the Lord and the Lord is preparing to discipline them that He might draw them back to Himself, He raises up a prophet like Isaiah to confront them with their sin. 
And Isaiah, to this point, has been confronting the people of Israel with their sin, and he will continue to do so throughout the book. The people's problem begins in themselves. That problem also is not only reflected in the fact that they are a sinful people, but they are a nation with very weak and wicked leadership. We find, if you'll remember, last week as we kind of referenced Isaiah chapter 7, what's going on in this particular passage of Scripture is that Isaiah is speaking to the king of Judah, who is Ahaz, at a time when their northern neighbors and cousins, Israel, has aligned themselves with the, one of the, the world powers, which is Syria at the time, and they are, going to, they are threatening to invade Judah and destroy it. Ahaz, rightly so, is scared. He's got a strong alliance now to his north that is threatening his kingdom. And so he is seeking out help. But what we find is that he is not necessarily coming to the one who is the source of help. But if you go just back into chapter 8, you find that he is condemned because he's not necessarily trusting in the Lord and the people that are around him are not trusting in the Lord. But instead, Paul, or the Lord tells Isaiah and the remnant of the faithful in verse 12, do not call conspiracy all that this people calls conspiracy and do not fear what they fear nor be in dread. We find that the leaders and the people of Israel are listening to conspiracy theories. Of all of the different things that are going on around them, they are living in this state of fear, and because they are in this state of fear, they are prone to believe all of these many different whispers of what could be going on. And that whispers of what could be going on, and that uncertainty about what is truth and the stories that are leaking to them and getting to them are leading them deeper and deeper into this state of fear. And they're given over to that position of fear. And the leadership is given over to that position of fear. And Ahaz, the king of Judah, the heir of David, has lost his way. Partly because instead of going to the source of truth, He is listening to all of these conflicting conspiracies that is leading him deeper and deeper into his own darkness. And in that place, as the leader of the people, he is now incapable of leading them in the way that they should go. And he actually, we find out, believes himself to be this master wheeler and dealer who's going to work his way out of this and find an alliance that is somehow going to defeat this alliance to the north of him. And God is calling him here to faithfully return to the Lord. That spiritual darkness, though, is even deeper than just the sin within the people or even the weakness and the blindness of the leaders. There is a spiritual darkness which has come in the shadow of the Lord's silence. Chapter 8, verse 17, Isaiah and his remnant declare, I will wait for the Lord who is hiding his face from the house of Jacob. I will hope in him. Because of the sin that exists inside of them and in their leadership, God has withdrawn himself as he is preparing now to discipline them. And in doing so, the people not turning to the Lord, they instead are turning to superstition and spirituality instead of trusting in the Lord. Verse 19 of chapter 8, they say to you, inquire of the mediums and the necromancers who chirp and mutter. 
Instead of coming to the prophet of the Lord, instead of going to the testimony and to the law, instead of coming to God himself, they are running to these superstitious spirituality as they are listening to all of these, again, shaped by the controversies and the conspiracies that are around them. They are going to these lesser sources of truth and entrusting their future to those places, to prophecies that don't match up with God's prophecies. Elevating and escalating necromancers, people who are going to the dead for answers, what was condemned in the law itself. And so you see there is a a darkness that is a result of the people's sin, of the wickedness of the leaders, of this um, turning to spiritual superstition. But also we see that they are an oppressed people. Chapter 8, verse 7, God reveals his plan to Ahaz as he says, the Lord is bringing up against them the waters of the river, mighty and many, the king of Assyria and all his glory. God's plan is he will deal with the alliance between Israel and Syria, and he will do so in his own way by raising up the king of Assyria to come. The Lord has declared his intention to bring judgment upon this people. And that judgment is going to start in the part of the nation closest to the Assyrians, which is the northernmost areas of Zebulun and Naphtali. Zebulun and Naphtali was that northern area, and it was a place where there was a lot of, it was the melting pot, really, if you will, of the nation of Israel. As people from all over the world met in those different places and came from different parts of the world, and so it was always known kind of as Galilee of the Gentiles. But it was also a place that was vulnerable to attack, especially as Assyria and Babylon and many others would come in from the north. It was oftentimes the first place to fall and therefore the first place to fall under oppression. And the darkness is going to come not only upon them, but also upon God's people in his discipline. But as we look at this and the reality of the spiritual darkness that is faced by these people, we can see ourselves in this, can't we? We can really see our nation today led in fear by many different conflicting conspiracies and news sources and news stories, and we don't know what source we're supposed to trust anymore. And the very places that we once looked to as as trusted institutions of proclaiming the truth in the news are now just news magazines on television. And we don't know who to believe and we don't know who to trust and we don't know if we can trust our leaders because we aren't really sure what's going on in their minds or their hearts or who they're listening to. And we don't necessarily look at our leaders and see upstanding Christian men and women who are worthy of our trust and our following. We see a nation that is left then leaderless and dark and in despair, but we see the world in that way as well. We see our own tendency towards sinfulness. We see our own tendency to turn to things less than Scripture for answers. We find there is gloom and distress and darkness and anguish over all of us. That darkness is looming not only in our hearts and not only over our nation, But it's looming over the church in many different ways as well. As we fight with one another, constantly bickering back and forth over different theological positions and this and that and the other, the world is broken by sin. But what Isaiah says in the verses that we read is there is reason to rejoice despite that brokenness. 
And that reason to rejoice is something that is somehow countercultural and against our understanding. God does raise up one who will fix this problem, but the one who fixes this problem isn't Ahaz and isn't necessarily some powerful person and leader, but the one who brings the light to the Gentiles, the light to the nations, the light to Zebulun and Naphtali is this child. This baby which is not only born, but this baby which is given. As Isaiah anticipates the dual nature of Jesus Christ that we talked about last week, born, he was human, given, he was God. And this one is the one who is the light. If the darkness is hiding God's face from his people, then the light that dispels the darkness is God entering into the darkness that he might be the source of light. And that one that entered into the darkness to be the ultimate source of life, the child that was born, the child that was given, Emmanuel, God with us, we find out is Jesus Christ, who is the light of the world, who dispels the darkness. The way that we fix darkness is turn on the light. When I needed to move around this morning to figure out all of my stuff and gather it together, I had to pull out my cell phone and turn it on that I might then see clearly what is in front of me. And that source of light, guess what? Didn't come from inside of me, but from outside of me. We will never, as sinful, broken people, trapped in the darkness of our sin, be able to bring forth a light that will somehow overcome the darkness. The only way that we can overcome the darkness is if we are rescued from it, and that is the life of Jesus Christ. John says in John chapter 1, verses 4 and 5, In Christ was life, and the the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. The identity of this child who is the light who brings hope into the gloom and the despair of Zebulun and Naphtali is Jesus Christ who was lived a life perfect and spotless and righteous, who, was never, who never sinned but was without sin, who nevertheless in his innocence was condemned to die, not because he deserved it but because we did, as our substitute, that he might take upon himself our sin, that he might catch this, enter into the darkness as he hung upon the cross, taking it upon himself, the wrath of God that you and I deserve for our sin. And he died. Not deserving death. Because death, the Bible tells us, is the wages of sin. But nevertheless, Jesus took that upon himself that we might be rescued from that darkness. And he was raised to new life that you and I might receive the promise that he is the firstborn among the dead, that he might be raised again, and that we might have the hope of everlasting life in him. We talked last week about many of the promises, the reasons that Jesus had to be fully human, and one of them, we said, is the fact that he was raised in a glorified body is the anchor, the down payment, if you will, of the promise that we believe that we will one day have glorified bodies. That God doesn't merely care about my spirit, he cares about my body as well. And he will rescue and redeem that in all of eternity. And Jesus is the answer to the one, as the one who takes our place and bears our punishment for sin, but then gives us his life, and not only that, his righteousness. 
his record of sinlessness granted to us. That is the gospel. That is the light that shines in the darkness. And where and when we are overwhelmed and overcome by our failures and the failures of our leadership and the failures of your pastor, the failures of one another, and we are overcome with darkness and despair and depression and hopelessness, what do we need but the light of the gospel? To hold fast to the promise that says, yes, your leaders are going to fall. And yes, your leaders are going to fail. And yes, you are going to fall. And you are going to fail. And there will never be a perfect kingdom, nation in this world. But there will be under Christ. And that is where we hope. And that is what we look forward to. And so very quickly, what we see as we move through the passages of Scripture down from verses 4 through 7, as Jesus is the one who dispels the darkness, who gives the people reason to rejoice. Verse 3, you've multiplied the nations, you've increased the joy, they rejoice before you. Then if you look, at least in the ESV, if you look in verse 4, 5, and 6, you find that each of those verses begin with the word for, which means there are reasons that these people rejoice. The first one that we see is that they have reason to rejoice, verses 4 and 5, because Jesus has defeated their enemies. Working in reverse order. Remember, we saw that in chapter 1, Isaiah exposes the sin of the people. We also see the weakness of the leadership, and then we finally see the oppression from the outside. The very first thing that we see as, as Jesus comes in and rolls back the curses, if you will, rolls back the problems of the scroll, is that he defeats their enemies. The yoke of his burden, the staff of his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you've broken as in the day of Midian. Every boot of the tramp tramping warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as for fuel for the fire. What Jesus does is he overthrows the overthrowers. He ousts the oppressors. In that passage of Scripture, those verses, we hear language that as we have, if we've, um, as we're familiar with Scripture, remind us of different times in the life of the nation of Israel when they were oppressed. The most significant being when they were oppressed and enslaved by Egypt. The language that is there that they've broken the, the, the yoke and the staff or his shoulder and the rod of his oppressor, that's all language that if you go back to Exodus is used to describe the Egyptians as they oppressed them and held them in captivity. But then he also references specifically the day of Midian, which should take our mind back to the book of Judges, when God raised up Gideon that he might take on the Midianites and destroy them and set the people free. But what is true about both of those stories is the fact that the people were overwhelmed by a mighty external enemy that God overthrows for them. It's God who wages war on the gods of Egypt and on Pharaoh himself through the Ten Commandments to set his people free. They never lift a finger. They never raise a sword. Then he does it again with Gideon. As Gideon, remember, he has that, that army of, I think, about 30,000 people, and God whittles it down to 300 men. And he sends those men out into the middle of the darkness, and those men themselves, they don't rage into, into battle. Instead, they give this giant bluff. And the Midianites wage war on themselves. And it's God who rescued and redeemed his people. It's God who defeated their enemies. It's God who takes upon himself the yoke and the burdens and the shoulders and overthrows their oppressors. It's God who rescues us. 
And there are so many of us right now who are under a different kind of yoke and oppressor in which we are trying our best day after day like hamsters on a wheel to rescue, to free ourselves from any number of things that are holding us in spiritual darkness. Maybe it's an addiction. Maybe it's depression. Maybe it's despair. Maybe it is grief or shame or any other number of sin that we are dealing with each and every single day. And we're doing everything in our power and our strength to just keep going, hoping beyond hope that at some point we will get through this thing. And though I would commend you for your resilience, I would urge you, trust in the one who promises to overthrow your enemies for you. And look to Jesus and look to God who has already proven his ability to do this in the fact that he has overthrown and defeated our greatest enemy and oppressor of all, which is our sin and our death. As he is the hope of our salvation. It's the passion of the Lord to rescue and redeem his people and draw them in close and to set them free. And so Isaiah calls on us as well to see this, to hope in this to believe in this, that God will overthrow the oppressor and that God will eliminate conflict altogether. And he will set them free such that every instrument of war will be burned as fuel for the fire. But God doesn't, we only only have reason to rejoice because God overthrows our enemies. We also see we have reason to rejoice because Jesus is the better king. The people of Israel were oppressed by the people north of them, by the Assyrians, by the Babylonians, and many other, but they also struggled again and again and again under wicked and evil kings who led them astray. But this one, this child who has come, is the one that the government shall be upon his shoulder, verse 6. And we find in this some characteristics of who he is, that he is the wonderful, the supernatural counselor. Every time, almost every time that we find that word wonderful, we find it in some kind of context of supernatural. It is a reference to some otherworldly something, power, strength, and here it is very clearly an otherworldly wisdom. Remember, the people of Israel are struggling with where do we get the right answers? They're listening and they're torn this way and that between conspiracies and whispers here and there, and they're going to necromancers and these unfaithful in unreliable sources of truth. What this child is, is the ultimate source of truth. The one who has a supernatural wisdom, who will be able to counsel and who will lead his people out of spiritual darkness and into everlasting life. The Messiah will be one with supernatural wisdom, and we find Christ to be just that, don't we? And he ends his ministry declaring that he is the source of truth. At the end of Luke, as he says, all of Scripture points to me. All of Scripture, Jesus says, is about him and revealing something of him. But not only is he a supernatural counselor, full of supernatural wisdom, he is mighty God. Such that there is no enemy that has the ability to overthrow him. We saw much of that last week. He is the biggest kid on the playground, and he's got our back. He is the best athlete on the field, and he is on our team. There is nothing that has the ability to overthrow him. Nothing that has the ability to undo what he has done. But beyond that, he is everlasting father. 
We have a tendency when we hear that to ask, well, that just really, especially if you've grown up in the church and you're familiar with the notion of the Trinity, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, how is it that the Son is the Father and vice versa? But we have to remove our understanding of the Trinity, set that aside in this, because that's not the kind of Father that is being referenced here. Instead, throughout the Old Testament, we find many different references to the responsibility of the king being as a father for the people, to care for them, to see them, to serve especially the neediest and the most oppressed among them, to be one who has a heart of compassion for his people. And we find that Jesus Christ, this Messiah, is going to be that kind of perfect father who doesn't just defeat the enemies, but who cares for even the most basic needs of his people. But ultimately, he is the prince of peace. He is the one who brings this spirit of shalom. Peace is not just the absence of conflict, though we see he ends all reason for conflict. But shalom throughout Scripture has this deeper context of this idea of wholeness, completeness, such that life is now restored and full again of everything that had been emptied. Everything that was broken is made right. Everything that is wrong is repaired. And so Jesus is the prince of peace. The prince here is this notion of a really an administrator. When Daniel was taken to Babylon, he was in some ways a prince, a ruler, a leader among the people. So what we find here is that this promised child, this Messiah, is one who administrates peace. He has an active, ongoing role in making sure that his people receive peace. And so we have reason to rejoice that Jesus is not asleep on that job. That Jesus is the one who is the ultimate prince of peace. The one who is administering peace within his people and ultimately for his people. Remember, we saw that the people had an internal problem of their own sin, a leadership problem of their, of, of, of their leaders being weak and wicked, an external problem of their oppressors. Christ deals with the oppressors. He is the better leader, but he is also the one who administers this kingdom, this government in which there is peace. And this peace we see in verse 7 is characterized, Jesus will uphold and establish his kingdom with justice and righteousness. You see, peace can only exist if evil is dealt with. And if evil is dealt with justly, fairly, quickly. And so under the reign and the rule of Jesus Christ, evil is dealt with. It is put away. It is answered for. But again, it's not just the absence of evil. It is the active lifestyle of righteousness. And it's the very righteousness of Jesus Christ that is granted to all of those whose faith and trust is in him. As we are adopted into his family, as we are transformed, as we are clothed in a breastplate of righteousness that is no longer ours, that is not ours, but is instead placed upon us because it is Jesus's. Ephesians chapter 6. And so Jesus reigns as the one who promises to administer justice and righteousness, who ensures peace, who promises a life with no limits, a utopia with no bounds, a perfect kingdom that has no end. That is who our Prince of Peace is. 
The one who eliminates our enemies, the one who leads us better than any pastor or president could ever hope to do, but the one who ultimately solves the problem of the despair and the darkness inside of us that holds us captive. And so we're called to remember that despite the darkness in us and despite the darkness outside of us, we have reason to rejoice. We can be a people who come in here regardless of what has happened in the world out there, regardless of what we anticipate to happen in the next couple of years, regardless of everything else. Despite the darkness, we are a people who rejoice. You see, what Isaiah is talking about here hasn't happened yet for him. Zebulun and Naphtali haven't even been conquered yet. It's still coming. He sees the coming gloom and despair and darkness and the subsequent rejoicing and release of freedom. And he talks about it every single verb in this passage, though it hasn't happened for Isaiah and his audience. He uses the past tense. It has happened. Because his faith and his trust is in the God who always keeps his promises. And he is writing this as he calls forth this faithful remnant to hold firm to the law and the testimony, chapter 8, to trust in God alone and wait on him despite the fact that he has turned his face from them. And to trust that regardless of the darkness that they face, there is hope and there is life And there is reason to rejoice on the other side. This light that comes, the one who is the light to Zebulun and Naphtali, doesn't show up until over 700 years later. When Jesus enters the world and Jesus begins his ministry, and it's after the temptation of him, of Jesus in the wilderness, that Matthew says this in Matthew chapter 4. That leaving Nazareth, Jesus went and lived in Capernaum by the sea, in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali, so that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be filled full. The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. And for those dwelling in the region and shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. Isaiah sees the suffering that is coming. Isaiah sees the despair and the darkness and the gloom that is coming, and he is writing to the people to say, hold fast to hope. There's no guarantee that they will see this in their lifetimes. But they are to hope and rejoice as those who have been rescued from darkness by the light of God's grace and mercy that we know to be in Christ. Brothers and sisters, I don't know what tomorrow is going to bring. There are some, I was with a lady the other week at the TBC, the Tennessee Baptist Convention. She is absolutely convinced that the UN has a plan to establish a one world government by 2030. And God promises that the church is going to be raptured by 2030. And so we don't have to worry about it. We only got seven years left. It might be seven seconds, it might be seven years, it might be 700 more. We are called to be people who rejoice 
no matter how bad it gets. Because we have been rescued and redeemed. Knowing that Jesus Christ has already defeated our greatest enemy, which is our sin and death. Knowing that Jesus Christ promises to be with his people to lead us and guide us by his word and his presence and his spirit. Knowing beyond a shadow of a doubt that Jesus Christ has overwhelmed our own internal darkness of sin with his perfect, pure light. And hoping in that, and holding fast to that, and as Advent reminds us, it's not just a reminder that he came, but he is coming again. And it's when he comes again that this kingdom that Isaiah said would come, had come, still isn't here. We're not living in a world in which Jesus is perfectly and wholly and completely administering shalom over the universe. But we can wait in hope and anticipation, knowing that he is the light of life, that he is the light of the world, that he is our hope. So take heart, believer in Christ. Be encouraged. You have a reason to rejoice. And if you're here this morning and you don't have that reason, because as the people of Israel were in Isaiah chapter 1, they were estranged from God because of their sin, God's heart is to rescue you. God's promise is to restore you. He won't just clean up your life. He'll transform it if you trust Him. Will you turn from yourself and will you trust in Christ today. How do you need to look to him and let the light of Christ dispel the darkness in your heart and your life?